Welcome into Art Gibbs Sports Business Podcast. This is episode seven. This is going to be a quick episode on college football. Um, what the heck is going on there? All right, so college football. Uh, we're going to kind of jump right in here on a, on a quick podcast, like I mentioned. There's a lot going on in college football right now, so we figured it would be kind of a timely thing as I've been reading the news and stuff like everybody else. I started to have some questions about where what was going to happen and where the leverage sat and what the business really kind of looked like. And so I kind of had some questions, went and did some research, had, had a few conversations, and this is just kind of a quick little synopsis of what what came from that. Um, we may have a follow-up here with some more uh, conversation, but just kind of wanted to put this out here and, and we'll go from there. Um, and, and I want to just kind of say at the beginning, this is not a podcast about the virus or about the health concerns uh, with the virus. That's something for the CDC and, and the experts. But what what's interesting here from a business perspective is what what the virus has kind of washed away and uncovered in college football that's that's really always been there but is now really coming to the forefront. So we'll kind of jump right into it. College football has always been the moneymaker for college sports. When I was in college, we had a football team that was 2-10. It was a Division I team but not a Power 5 uh, conference member and a basketball team that was ranked 2 Two in the entire country out of all the Division I teams. The stadium was packed at the basketball games. Nearly 18,000 people per game. Many more home games. Honestly, there was, a, there was the football. There was not even 5,000 people in the stands. And yet, our coaches always told us, hey, football will make more money than basketball this year. Wow. You know, and as a track athlete, I was thinking, I'm going to have to run really fast to make some money. If you run through the Forbes list and look at the nation's most profitable football programs, there are several football programs that spit off nearly $100 million per year to other sports and other programs within the school. With the top 25 list, no one is below $27 million that they in profit that they spit off to other sports. So how does that compare to other sports within a school? Well, really, it doesn't compare at all. There's a few basketball programs that produce some pretty good money. But other than that, there's, there's not much. Uh, so even in basketball, if you look at the most profitable uh, college basketball programs, uh, again, according to Forbes, Kentucky and Louisville topped the list at $31.2 million and $29.2 million, respectively. And then by the time you get down to Duke at number eight, you're down to $14.6 million in profit. And then by the time you're getting down to Alabama and Texas at number 19 and 20, you're below $5 million and below $1 million, respectively. And that's based on a trailing three-year average, and both the football and basketball numbers are according to Forbes. Um, those numbers for basketball, those top, top teams are not too shabby, but they're nowhere near football. Again, for context, those are the top 20 basketball teams. And if you look at just Texas's case, Texas, who's ranked number two in football, has a football program that's averaged nearly $92 million in profit per year over, the, over those last three years. And Texas is a big school, and it's in a big conference, and its basketball team is pretty good. And yet, the football team produces 92 times what their basketball program produces. So it, it really doesn't compare. Like I said, there's, there's probably there's about 10 college basketball programs that make any significant money 
And then beyond that, it's all football, all football. Now we come to the current predicament. And what really got me interested was that it looks like it's shaping out in this SEC and company versus Big Ten and company power struggle. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the FOCA and FISA battles in Formula One. And shameless plug, you can go listen to podcast episode number five if you have interest there. So you've got this power battle, but what is conspicuously absent in this power battle is the NCAA. And so I'm thinking, you know, as a former college athlete who all you heard was NCAA, NCAA, all of this kind of stuff in this huge battle that we're talking about, on um, whether we're going to have college football, not have college football, conspicuously absent is the NCAA. Theoretically, the NCAA is in charge. In March, uh, when they stopped the NCAA tournament, that was it, basically. College basketball was done. Now, sure, they were further along in their regular season. And again, setting aside the differences in the virus and things like that, it was over pretty quick. It was pretty much done. And now we have high school sports going and pro sports starting up. And yet we've got conferences deciding whether they play or not in college football. So where is the NCAA in this? Who, who has the leverage? It can be answered a little bit in the, in the fact that the NCAA does not administer the college football playoff. The conferences themselves put on their conference tournaments or their conference championships for football. So football is already slightly different. You know, the NCAA, if you look at other sports, the NCAA basically controls the other sports, but has very little leverage and control over its over the biggest money-making sport in college football. So in all of their sports, the NCAA crowns the national champion, puts on the, the national championship, but again, in college football, it doesn't. And so it already is a little separate. And, you know, Colin Cowherd suggested that uh, the college football needs a czar. You know, it's it's a professional sport. It needs to split off from the other sports and have one person in control or one entity in control. And, you know, that's an interesting thing to dive into. Now, who has the leverage? What's What's going on there? Well, it seems that TV is key, as it is in many sports. John Malone cited in his annual CNBC interview with David Faber, he said, content is king in the new viewing landscape, but not necessarily in the traditional studio sense that makes movies or one-off content and then struggles to negotiate the tail revenue with the distributor, whether that distributor is the traditional cable TV or the bundle over the top. Sports content, on the other hand, is a different thing. It's basically the thing holding the traditional cable bundle above water. It's unique. It's ever-changing. And like John Malone's purchase of Formula One shows, he has a big conviction there. And there's a big, there's big money going for these, these sports leagues or franchises. That'll be in an upcoming podcast. We'll talk more about John Malone and Formula One if, for those who are interested. With sports, the viewers who want sports have to have them. There's no substitute. Unlike movies, and that's kind of contrary to what some people may think, in the digital age, the movies are more interchangeable than one may realize. They generally have the same themes and plots and those kinds of things, and people aren't really going to change subscription service to go see a movie, a one-off movie. Not having football for a season, that's a different story. They'll change providers or whatever to get football. In college football, the way it works generally with TV is that the conferences negotiate with the TV networks and they negotiate as a single entity for those contracts. Obviously, every deal is a little different, but, you know, and that can be based on timing and, and different things like that. But generally, the Big Ten and the SEC sit atop the list. The SEC's TV revenue 
for 2017-2018 set a record at $627 million. And then the following year, the Big Tens was $759 million. And just a quick note for those that are interested, in the Big Tens case, um, all the legacy schools got an equal share of that. But the new schools, Maryland and Rutgers, received less of a distribution because they had received loans from the Big Ten against their future TV money, basically. And then just to kind of show the comparative landscape a bit, the Big Ten and the SEC deals are bigger than the Big 12 and the Pac-12 deals. The ACC deal was bigger than the Big East deal, and that's a reason why Syracuse left. You know, Jim Beheim talked a lot about that. So in who has the leverage, it sounds like the conferences do. They're the ones doing the negotiating. They're the ones that hold this content. But now with this sort of standoff to some degree between the Big Ten and the SEC. And again, you can, if you want more information on that, you can go check the news. We're now asking for the first time, there's a, there's an important question arising, do certain conferences have leverage over one another? And and then consequently, who who runs college football? We we, we don't know. Uh, it's It seems very just disjointed and it seems oh, it's just the conferences and they need one person together. But now we're seeing with this standoff, maybe it's a little more solidified into fewer players than we initially thought. So this is how it's shaping out a bit. Big Ten and Co. versus SEC and Co. The Big Ten made their bid. They viewed that the wins were moving towards postponement and wanted to get out in front of that. They went along with the Pac-12 and canceled fall sports. Now, that's a bit of a risky move because although the winds are moving in that direction, if, if they don't go all the way that way and the SEC you know, stands up and plays football and so does the Big 12 and the ACC, then that would be a pretty disastrous situation for the Big 10 most likely. Uh, and, and the SEC would solidify its place at the top, especially if the season's played without major health incidents, which of course is an if and, and a hope. Now, you know, as of a few days ago or yesterday, the NCAA canceled all fall championships. So that's certainly a blow to some degree for the SEC, although it doesn't directly affect college football, as we mentioned. But now, you know, there's this awkward, they've got to figure out the postseason for all these other sports that are non-money-making sports. Uh, like I said, I was a part of those. They're great, but they're non-money-making and then that kind of potentially makes their season a little more difficult and a little more awkward. So it's it's very interesting now to see these players solidify into almost two fronts, this Big Ten and Co., SEC and Co. And who knows what will happen in this kind of ever-changing and unprecedented time, but it's a very interesting question on what the future of the multi-billion dollar sport of college football will look like after this power struggle goes through. Will there be some consolidation in negotiating with the TV networks? Where will the rivalries fit in? A lot is unknown. But one thing you can be sure of is if the SEC and the Big 12 and the ACC are all forced to cancel fall sports, the Big 10 and their commissioner will look like first in line to be the czar that Cowherd was asking for. Thank you. Again, that was just a quick, short podcast. And like I said, we'll probably follow up. Thank you.